subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Good afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today? All right, Cliff. How's it going with you? It's going all right. Here, I'm at the NABC as usual, uh, mostly because my internet sucks at home. But I got here today and Connor had some interesting news. He recorded a couple Sasquatches last night in Mountain Hood National Forest. So uh, that's exciting news. So um, as soon as I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to run out to the woods and look around in the area, start, try to find some footprints, get some other uh, information, stay out until well after dark and try to get some more recordings. So what did he get? He got a record. Basically, he went out there with Keith and Emily and um, they were driving around, checking out some locations and whatever. And they did a couple calls at this one spot and they had uh, callbacks from three directions two of which Connor feels very confident um, those were Sasquatches. One, was he wasn't so sure about, and after hearing the recording, um, uh, he and I both suspect they're probably coyotes. But that makes sense, too, because you know there's, there's that relationship between Sasquatches and coyotes, whatever that is. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, 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 I'm going to go check out the area. Um, there's a nice little pocket of a spot where I can look for footprints that these things, one of the two might have been in, and the other one might have been on a ridge um, nearby. So we're going to go out and poke around a little bit in the woods tonight to see if we can get anything. Oh, cool. I'm jelly. Yeah. Well, you know, it, we're very lucky in this way. You have the museum and, and Connor's on fire about getting out with Keith all the time and Emily's visiting and, and uh, with all this sort of thing, there's people out in the woods doing something all the time. Um, this week alone, uh, between uh, Connor and, and me, we've, we've basically spent three days in the woods. You know, and it's what, Friday. So three, three out of five days. Not bad. It's a big footy life. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty, pretty fortunate. So anything going on with you that uh, you want to share with anybody or? Uh, just doing the documentary stuff. We're going to, we got like three of them going at once. So yeah, trying to get a uh, permits to get in. I guess they opened up the f- national forest again at these spots. So we can get into a couple spots we need to get into. Permits. Look at you, Bob's all grown up, man. I thought you not the Bobo I first met. You would have just hopped the fence and filmed anyway. Dude, that's well. We, we've done some of that. <laughs> I think all productions do a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I were throwing a bunch of money at something, I would want it done right too. So the problem is a couple of spots are so distinctive. There's no way we could, you know, fudge where we were at because it's just obvious. You know, it's a well-known spot. Yeah, and of course, you never know who's listening. So why would anybody want to do that anyway? Uh, paperwork. Okay, well, I was just trying to cover you, but if you don't care, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these, these Forest Service guys, though, a lot of them are, it's like pulling teeth. Like the guy in Six Rivers is great. He's super helpful, wants to wants to help you get out there and get through the paperwork as fast as possible. These men up in Oregon and a couple other spots, man, they just drag their feet and don't even call you back for months at a time. And Well, it's got to be, uh, you know, a, a spot per spot thing. Um, because I, 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 was, I got permits for a Gifford Pin show a few years ago to film something up there. And the guy was, you know, mediocre, pretty, pretty, pretty average for, you know, state employee sort of thing, you know, like he did get back to me, but it, it took a little bit of nudging. Um, when I was getting permits to run expeditions at a mountain hood, though, the, they could not have been more helpful. And that's when I just said, there is no conspiracy from the government, like some sort of policy, because these guys could not have been more helpful, um, calling me back immediately and helping me with the paperwork when I didn't understand what or how to do something or when to do something. Um, so it must be just maybe an individual thing or perhaps a local, um, you know, ranger district thing. I don't it's know. individual. Well, some of them guys don't, they just want to keep it like a wilderness area, like no, anything in there, just backpackers only, that kind of thing. Where their job is to, the job is of its national forces to facilitate its use, and they're not doing that. Yeah, wilderness areas are touchy, though. I will say that we tried to get some permits for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying like I, I'm I'm down for wilderness areas, but if it's not a wilderness area, if it's a national forest, they're supposed to facilitate its use. Yeah, absolutely, they're public servants. They are there to serve you, Bobo. You must like that. I, I remind them of that. <laughs> I bet you do. Does it, does, it's not the most effective strategy. <laughs> Listen, do you know who you're speaking to? <laughs> this is the Bobo, not a Bobo, the Bobo. <laughs> you think that would work and it's not doing so great. I just think you need to do it, do that harder, whatever that means. You know what? If I get any more hassle out of these guys, this one 
district. I'm going to call Timber Chet and see if you can flex a little federal power on them. Right, right. We got to use our contacts. Yeah. For those out there that don't know, Tim Burchett's the former mayor of Knoxville that brought Finding Bigfoot there like three times. And then now he's the Tennessee Second District U.S. Congressional Representative, member of Congress. House of Representatives. Using Bigfoots on his reelection sticker. What a guy. So who do you got today for us, Cliff? I have a treat and I have a friend, which is really, really nice. Um, we've we've known her for a long time. I mean, I, I just kind of know her from the Bigfoot circuits, basically, you know, and I know that she's told me all sorts of amazing tales of, of observations of Sasquatches that give insight into their behaviors and social structures and stuff. And I thought she would be a fantastic guest, not only because she's a, she's a witness, of course, and observe these things, but she's also indigenous. She's a First Nations, and she could correct me on that um, in a few moments if she'd rather be called Native American, but I believe First Nations is the appropriate term because uh, I believe her tribal affiliation is from Canada. Um, but it, it's our friend uh, Winona Kirk. So Winona, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with with me and that guy. Hey, Winona. Hey, guys. Hi. So thanks so much for coming on with us. Uh, did, uh, did I get that right? By the way, do you prefer First Nations because it's a Canadian thing, or is it Native American, or do you even care? Yeah. Well, I ended up in Canada, but I'm originally from the U.S. So. I, I just Lakota, Nakota, Dakota, but it doesn't matter. Now, those tribes are, are, are that's from um, like the Midwest, right? L- like South Dakota, for example, is where I ran into uh, Lakota Sioux. Um, is that the, the area that, um, that, that your, your tribal affiliation comes from? Yeah, um, my father was born on the Rosebud Reservation, um, but he's he has grandparents from Nebraska and, and Minnesota. So, you know, it was a, it's such a wide swath for Dakotas or mostly in uh, um, Minnesota. And then there's Nakota are up in Canada. So I lived on a Nakota reserve in Alberta, Canada. That's who we filmed with when we did our Canadian episode. We were with the Stony Nakota. Yeah, the the people in Alexis are also stony, but they're further uh, north from the Morley people. You probably went to Morley. I know the people. Um, what was it Lenny or? Yeah, Lenny. Yeah, we all see each other like at uh, the Sundance, the Sundances. Um, so that's kind of where people come together for that ceremony every year. Man, I was a wreck at that. I went to my buddy uh, Josh. Big Josh, that was our witness in Montana, the big guy that wore a three-piece suit and sang the Waxing a Sasquatch song. Uh, it was his wedding, and I flew down, and, man, we, God, we just partied the whole time. I, we had a night investigation. We, we went until 4 a.m., then I got straight into a vehicle, drove down to the Calgary, got a flight. I had to hopscotch back and forth and get to Montana for the wedding. We raged all night. Then I had a ride that had to drive me back. I had to get picked up at 2 a.m. to get my ride back to go to film. And then I went through like a 10 or 12 hour hassle, you know, like connecting flights and this and that. Then I got to the customs that, and I haven't slept now for two days and I've been drinking about a hundred beers. I'm trying to get back into Canada and they're, they're holding me up and there was a, there was a, some BS there and I'd already come through before and there was like a little hassle with it, but they, as soon as they called it in, they, but it was a Sunday. So the offices in the U S were closed. So they said, you're going to have to wait. You can't come in and, I promised Hamill, our uh, showrunner, because the whole production would have to stop if I wasn't there. I said, I'll get in no matter what. So they let me out of this other room, this holding area, and the guy didn't close the door all the way. And I just bolted out, jumped out, and ran out of there, and went and got got a cab and split out of there. And So I haven't, I haven't been able to go back since. Yeah, you're not allowed back in Canada. <laughs> it's because I skipped a <laughs> line. It's been 10 years last month. So I think I'm good. I remember like, you know, around that time, that didn't seem like 10 years. God. Yeah. You know, cause I've known you, we were friends online way before the show started. Like I, I, yeah. Cause then when I met you, I was like, cause I'd known you for so long, you know, digitally, it was cool to meet you in person. Then you married one of our good bros. That was even better. <laughs> yeah. John. Yep. A guest on our show previously, John Kirk. An all around swell guy. He's such a good guy to interview. I noticed he just never runs out of material. <laughs> he doesn't. He's smart as hell. He's 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 definitely one of the best. He's one of the best Bigfoot investigators, like true investigators. He's yeah. I mean, with his work on Albert Osman, I mean, 
what else has he done? He did Osman and a few other things. Yeah, Osman and the... Um, oh, the PG film. The PG film and also, uh, what is it, the Jacko. Yeah, Jacko, yeah. We go around and we, we dig up like archives and we go to, we've been to the Tunnel 3, I think it is. Um, you know, like we're just boots on the ground. It's really fun to, to do that. And we went to try and find Albert Osman's grave and we, they, it's not marked, it's unmarked, but we finally got in touch with the, the people who of the graveyard and they showed us, they took us out there they put a cone there. And now John's in touch with Albert Osman's niece who has some really cool stories of growing up, um, you know, going to his cabin and he, he would have a horse in his cabin. <laughs> Inside his cabin. Inside his cabin. <laughs> treated his horse more like a dog. And <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've been trying to figure out a way to at least get his grave marked. Even if, you know, like John doesn't believe the story. But, you know, somewhere along the line, I'd have to say Albert Osman got some really interesting details. For sure. I mean, there's there's no way that he would know all that stuff. There's no way unless he was in direct. I mean, maybe this whole story didn't, you know, like obviously the John, you know, went through all that. But it's it's still you can't account for these things that didn't arise until just recently that as none of researchers. Mm hmm. Exactly. I'm on the fence myself. I think, you know, something may have happened. And it may not have been exactly uh, like he might have been mixed up on the the areas and the regions or, you know, things like that. The fact that he could see Mount Baker um, from where he supposedly came out, where you can't see Mount Baker from that area. Stuff like that may not have panned out, but there's there's definitely something more to the story. It just makes you really want to dig more. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I find that a lot of investigators nowadays, um, I think they hold people too strongly to being correct. Um, because just in my, I don't have a lot of, I'm not a people person. I mean, it's hard to tell unless you see me do a presentation when I'm scolding the audience about something, but, um, like I'm really not a people person necessarily, even though I'm good at that. I don't put a lot of faith in what people say. Um, and not that they're lying, but I think that people are just kind of terrible observers. And when, you know, I, I know I'm subject to my own memory as well. So I know, I don't think memories are faultless either. Um, I, I think approximations are sometimes good enough, especially with these, you know, really old reports. I mean, because uh, Albert Ostman, what, that was in the 1920s, but he didn't even tell anybody until, what, the 60s, if I remember right? Um, that's a long time. You know, I mean, wh what were you doing 40 years ago? You know, I, I may not remember very clearly. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. People are uh, hold people to all the facts, and if one fact doesn't um, line up with what the person said, they throw the whole thing out. And uh, I've that's been my complaint with a lot of, um, particularly the old time researchers. You know, the horsemen in particular, they throw. I in my it's my feeling that they've thrown out a tremendous number of babies with the bathwater. Winona, uh, you have seen Sasquatches a number of times, but did, were, did you see one and then became interested in the subject or were you interested in the subject and then saw one eventually? Well, you know, I do remember as a kid watching like In Search Of and all that stuff, I'm kind of telling my age here. <laughs> we're right there with you. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I do remember that and it was intriguing and everything, but I kind of well, it was gone out of my mind for, for years and years. And even after my first sighting, I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't know what was happening around my house. My dogs were barking. Here's the, my first ever experience that I had to think in retrospect. Well, now, is this when you were still in Virginia or had you moved to the reserve at that point? This is after I moved to the reserve. I, uh, the dogs were barking for like it seemed like all day but it was probably just like a couple hours and I, I because I wasn't familiar with uh, the wilderness so to speak so you know I'm thinking it could have been a moose running around in the bush because I, I was surrounded by um, woods on all sides um, with a clear acre around my house 
I went outside and I slammed the door and I yelled, get out of here. You know? And I heard a, like a, tr- a tree snap or a you know, stick or something to my right. And I looked and there's like an opening. There was kind of a little bit of a slough there with uh, cattails. And then there were woods beyond that, but not very far. And I saw something's back, like the back of an animal um, kind of whizzed through there. And then it was gone into the thick bush. What struck me about that was that it had hair that was like four inches long, maybe five inches long. And it was like a salt and pepper gray. It was was like a, you know, salt and pepper gray, you know, wiry hair. But it was the height of an elk or a horse. A horse is close to that too. So I just stood there frozen for, I don't know how long. And I'm, it's like my brain is going through its database of animals. <laughs> and I couldn't equate it to anything that I knew of. So then I thought, you know what, maybe I should go inside. So I went inside and I stood in my kitchen doing the same thing, trying to match it up to something, you know, that I knew of. It wasn't an elk because the hair was, or a horse, because the whole, it was like the whole back of the animal was that long. And whatever it was, I had scared it or made it take off. And that's kind of the, you know, the impression I got from that. So that was my very first, that's not actually my very first. My very first was, um, I lived, when I lived there, I lived there with a grandma. She moved in with me because my former husband had to leave to go back to his old job, which was good because his new job hadn't started. So I spent two months with her. We were making dry meat. She was teaching me how to make dry meat. They, they cut it real thin and then you hang it up to smoke. And we were out there and it was starting to get dark and we could hear, you know, footprints around us. And so I was thinking, you know, it was a bear. You smells the meat, whatever. She leans over to towards me and she says, um, we have to box this up and put it in the house quickly. And I was like, what is that? She goes, it's shijing. And I was like, what's a shijing? <laughs> I'm thinking some animal I'm not aware of. <laughs> or maybe that's the Nakota, their stony word for um, bear. She goes, she leans up closer and she goes, it's a Sasquatch. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I didn't believe her. Right. So we had to, bo- we boxed up all the meat and brought it inside. And that was the end of that. Uh, about a month later, I was sound asleep. She was sleeping in the, my guest room. And I heard, I was woken up by what sounded like a woman being murdered And I jumped up and I started running towards the front door down the hall. And I heard her behind me. It's just a coyote. It's just a coyote. And I was like, what the hell? Coyote. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, maybe I won't go out then. (laughs) So, but also I would hear like what sounded like someone behind the house chopping trees. And there's no houses around there were no houses in those woods. It was just all woods. And I was like, what, who is back here chopping on the trees? You know, just a repeated knock then over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It was more, yeah, more like a chop, 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 you know, and I just couldn't figure it out because I'm a birder. I've been a birder since I was 13. So, you know, I know somebody was asking me, could it have been woodpeckers? And I was like, no, not a woodpecker. They're more like, you know. So that was my first couple of experiences. Um, Because of her saying that, I started to ask a few elders, do you guys uh, have Bigfoots around here? (laughs) Well, some of the elders would say, we don't talk about that because that will bring them here. They'll bring them to us if we talk about them. And other elders would be like, oh, yeah, you know, back when I was at my trap lines, because they have trap lines. 
when I first moved there in 98, a lot of the elders didn't even have uh, indoor plumbing or electricity. Even to today, a lot of them don't have phones. Um, <clears throat> there was just really no, it, it just seemed like I went back 50 years in time. You know what I mean? And we didn't get internet till 2008 there. Well, yeah, this is way out there, right? So, and can you describe the landscape for? Is it mountains? Is it forested? Is it kind of mixture of you know? It's in the Lake Plain, so kind of on the edge of the boreal forest. It probably would be boreal forest if it hadn't a lot of it. In, in fact, on the reserve, it's like a little island left over, and around it has been logged or or turned into agricultural lands, stuff like that. A lot of swamps, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Swamps, muskeg, um, <clears throat> yeah, and lots of dotted lakes everywhere. There's like three lakes on the reserve, maybe even four. There's Horse Lake, Birch Lake, Lac St. Anne is the big lake that it's on. I'm giving everybody the location, but. We could always pull it out if you want. Oh, no, it doesn't matter because it, they see a strange car on the reserve and everybody's looking at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of these places you have to be a damn fool to go poking around in. <laughs> I get a, I got a few people that send me regular reports from there, from that reserve. Really? Yeah, but it's it's usually like, well, it's a lot of Bigfoot, but there's a lot of like Dogman and uh, Wendigo. I've heard those stories as well. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. I think the best part about it was the, the elders' stories and being out in the trap lines. And there was one man, he told a story of pointing his gun. Like he saw something and he pointed his gun and when he realized it, he thought it was a bear. Of course, we've heard this story before. And then he saw that it was not a bear. And he brought his gun down and started heading back to the trappers', trappers cabins, which still there's a lot of trappers cabins that the First Nations people run out there. And that seems to be where most of the stories come from. So he was heading back to the cabin and something it was getting dark something whizzed back behind him and whacked him on the backside when he got back to the uh cabin he told um his cousin these are two old elderly men what happened and he said now i don't know which word he used for it if it was jizzing or tata money or what tata money is big big walker he said uh it hit me. It hit me. In the, it it uh, and this was a stony word. And I don't know what it was, but it disciplined me because I aimed my gun at it. And the other guy didn't believe him, so he turned around and he lifted up his shirt, and there was a, this enormous handprint on his backside. Oh wow! I thought he threw a branch. No, he got whacked by the by its hand. My there have been a few other cases of that where people had big hand shaped bruises or something like that. Um, it's rare, but you know that's not a, that's not the first one of those I've heard. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Here's another story I'd love to tell about Grandpa Sandy. He lived in a little two room cabin with a wood cook stove and an outhouse right down um, the end of the road where I lived. And I think that this is this might be why they started coming around the house. But also, there's a, a spring behind my old house, so. That's probably the other thing. And <clears throat> the dogs would bark between 9 and 11 at night, religiously. They would go in. They would chase bears. They would chase moose. They would get porcupine quills religiously every year. I had six big dogs. But they would not go into the woods. They would bark into the woods between 9 and 11 and between 4 and 6 in the morning. So that's when I was observing patterns, right? And it would be quiet in June and July. No barking like that in June and July. This grandpa who lived in the cabin down the road, <clears throat> it was down at the corner. Um, it's all dirt roads out there. There's no pave, pavement. He um, would come to my house for breakfast on his way to his brother's house. And um, years later, like this is only six years ago, that this woman told me, you know, I was really close friends with your former mother-in-law. Well, she didn't say that, mother-in-law. 
And we used to go to Sandy's cabin and have tea. And one time we heard this strange talking, these very strange, strange voices outside his cabin. And he looked at us and he said, it's okay. I have, uh, there's Sasquatch around my house and they just want my uh, leftovers. So he had this bowl, this big enamel bowl where he would put his uh, moose ribs, leftover moose ribs, potatoes, and whatever, because that, you know, he, most people, most of the elders, they eat a lot of moose meat and, you know, potatoes. <laughs> so he said, I'll be right back. And he took that bowl out and left it on the edge of the clearing by the bush and came back in. And he says, now they won't, now they'll be quiet. And she said that her, my, my, former mother-in-law and her were so scared they they stayed the night in the cabin they didn't leave and go home that's the thing about feeding them you know people have this uh idea about feeding them is a good idea and i'm not so sure that's accurate because you don't know what you're asking for well let me tell you when i first figured out what was going on around my house was when my son was nine years old and we were driving down the road And this animal crossed the road in front of us, and it was small, um, had a round head, and it was running across the road on its fists, just like a monkey. And I stopped the truck. This was in late fall. I stopped the truck, so so I had to or I would have hit it. And I looked at my son, and I said, did you see that? And he's like, yeah, he was nine years old. He said, I saw that. He's 22 now. And I said, what did that look like to you? And he said, it looked like a baby orangutan. And I was like, exactly. I know I didn't say that right. Orangutan. (laughs) Yeah, there's no G at the end. Most people don't know it because orangutan sounds cool. You know, it's a cool sounding word. Orangutan means forest person in in Indonesian. So anyways, um, then I, I, after we both just kind of sat there for, uh, I don't know, a few seconds, I was like, I'm getting out of here. And I kept driving. And then I, that, by then I was, I was starting to get on the internet because we had the internet again, you know, we had the internet and I started searching up, I was on Facebook. I started searching up Bigfoot anything. And I found a few like groups or, you know, posts. And so I started making inquiries, started reading things. And I read about gifting and peanut butter And so I just decided to start going into the woods and walking around. And I heard one of the the guys that used to hunt back there in the day, back in this one part of the woods. And he said, well, we always see footprints in there. So I started going in there and looking around. I would find footprints. I would take pictures of them. But most of the time when I would find footprints was not when I was looking for them. When I was, because I'm a walker, I like to walk. And, um... <clears throat> nobody was using that area anymore to hunt. Would you find multiple prints, like different sized, large ones together? Would it be like a single individual? Like, would you see the same ones over time? Or No, I've, I've found um, some that were like a different, three different types in one place. I've got a picture of that. It was in ice, and you could see where like one stepped into the slush. And that foot was, I think, 13 inches then there was one bigger than that and then there was one that was narrower and smaller years and years um throughout the years i even found four inch um little tracks um there was just a there were only two a a right foot and a left foot and then it's just you know they're gone there's no more but it was kind of on the edge of the road so um i just take pictures i didn't want to I wanted to get different information and I didn't care. Like everybody was getting footprints and I, I, I respect that, you know, you have a catalog and footprints, but I wanted an interaction. You know what I mean? I was going for contact <laughs> and I didn't know, like I've even had people back then who saw some of my pictures that offered um, game cams to be put up around my place. I think that was uh, Derek Randall's. I'm not sure. I think it was. He said that he could send me a bunch and I could put them up. 
blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to do that because that's not what, you know, what I was going for. <laughs> I wasn't going for the, the proof. I wanted, like, I noticed all these patterns, like I said, with in the morning and at night and then them being gone. Well, later on, I found out that uh, people were finding footprints on the other side of um, this one lake. It's a good size lake in the middle of the reserve. And when we would go, we had a swimming spot there. It was like the only side part that had like a beach. And I'd be swimming in, around in the reeds and I'd find stacks of clam. They had fr huge freshwater clams in that lake and white sandy beaches. So it's like some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what you call that. It used to be part of an ocean leftover. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what you call it, but. I would find clam shells stacked up in piles on the shore. And I thought, that's weird. <laughs> like, and there might have been maybe a few days out of the summer that a few people, and I'm talking about mostly kids would ride their bikes there and go swimming and then ride their bikes home. It wasn't, you know, there's maybe one or two houses near it on like one side. Uh, so I, I figured, okay, so in June and July, my dogs don't bark at night or in the morning. It gets, you know, it's, it's over for two months and for 20 years, it was the same thing. June, July, it's quiet. So I figured, well, there must be some food source over there that's just right in June and July. And then they come back starting in August and in the wintertime, even they were they were somewhat active unless it was really cold. Like, I mean, we have 10 below to 40 below Celsius there. 40 below Celsius is actually equal to um, 40 below Fahrenheit. That's where it meets up to be the same. And um, yeah, so yeah, those were obviously quiet times. Even my dog, maybe because my dogs were in their houses. <laughs> yeah, what do you think they do during that time of year? In the winter? I have had uh, some elders tell me that they do, they hunker down underground. How that could be, I have no idea because underground would be pretty much the water table where I was. <laughs> I heard they go in those muskeg places and tear up like a big hole and lay that, all that peat moss back on top of them. It's like kind of generates warmth because it's decomposing. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That really makes sense. I, I have found things back there that were like, I didn't find nests, but I did find where whole, because we have a lot of willow, like the willow bush, where the whole things would be bent over and I could jump on them like they were a bouncy mattress. And I was thinking, you know, maybe that just, I don't know what time of year, but maybe that keeps them up off the wet ground, you know, kind of thing. There was whole bunches of them behind my house. Did the elders tell you, like, and did you notice by, you know, examining scat, what their diet was like, year, like different parts of the year? No, um, none of them really had that kind of detail. But what I figure is there's plenty. We had links because we had, if you have links near where you live, that means you have lots of rabbits. Um, we had deer. I did find a bone area, uh, an area that there were, it was like a bone cache. Uh, skulls, um, hair would be laying there. I have pictures of that too, big leg bones. It was, I found like 10 skulls, mostly deer. All kind of in the same general area or piled up or? Uh, no, not in a pile, but just in an, in an area. Like uh, I'd have to think maybe a 50 foot radius. Okay. Some were more concentrated together. And I have pictures of that too, but I have no idea. <clears throat> like I just found that, I just found that like right before I moved here. Okay. So back to the videos or the things that I saw about peanut butter. So I started to go, I found a spot that I thought was, it was wide open. There was giant trees. So there, there was less um, thick bush to go through. And uh, I would, I found a stump and I would put peanut butter there. 
I put a jar of peanut butter, the first Opened jar. Opened or shut or? I would actually open it and take the foil off and put that in my pocket and then close it. But I was doing it so that I could be seen in case I was being watched. <laughs> and believe me, I felt like I was being watched <laughs> in this one particular. That's why I chose this area. It was just the air was so heavy. It was really weird. So anyways, I came back the next day, the jar was gone and the lid was on the ground. So I walked around looking for the jar and never found a jar. Over the years, I've never found one jar. So I started to do this every three days. Same thing. The lid would be on the ground at the base of the stump and the jar would be gone. After a while, I thought, you know, what if this isn't good for them? So I brought out natural the natural peanut butter. They didn't like it all that. No, they didn't touch it. They left it every time. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a common thing? I mean, have you heard that before? Yeah, I've heard they like the cheap, the cheap sugary stuff. Yes, they love it. And if I can add, uh, one investigator says I, you need to get the kind with the red lids. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I was recommended. I actually have a picture. One is a red lid, one is a green lid, and one is a blue lid. So I was just buying. It didn't matter for you then. Okay. No, I was just buying different stuff, whatever, you know, whatever it would grab. But the natural stuff they never touched. I did that twice and they didn't touch it. I don't know. (laughs) I don't like it myself. Did you leave (laughs) other food items? I left a can of um, (laughs) smoked oysters (laughs) and an onion. They didn't touch the onion. But they liked the oysters. Yes, the oysters were gone, but that could have been any animal. Sure, sure, yeah. That's what, you know, that's how I deduced it at the time. I was like, well, that could have been, because I left it open. I didn't want them to cut themselves. Did you notice anything happening when you, uh, when you broke the pattern? Um, that third day, for example, you didn't put a peanut butter jar out. Uh, no, actually, I stopped after a while altogether just because I was busy doing other things in life. And my former husband was off on a lot of business trips. So he was gone. They would come around like religiously when the truck was gone. One night I was sleeping. I wasn't really asleep yet. I was actually just kind of trying to go to sleep. And something hit the house. And I, I, in my mind, I thought a moose must have been running full steam ahead and slammed right into my bedroom wall. So I, I went outside and I looked around. There was nothing. Um, I called my neighbors because, you know, to send her husband over. Oddly enough, I didn't know that their car wasn't running at the time. So it took him a while. He walked over or oh, ran over. Very sweet. And he had a flashlight and he's looking around. And he's the one that told me it's probably a Bigfoot. And then he laughed. So I'm like, ha, ha, ha. But in my mind, I was like, what if he's right? After a while, like one time I was actually on Skype to my friend Kenny and I was doing some drywall repairs in my bathroom at the same time. And they hit the wall from the outside of the, of the bathroom and he heard it like Kenny heard it on Skype. <laughs> so that was you know, it became like a, it was almost like maybe three times a year, wasn't it? It was regular. And then it was like. To this day, when my kids are visiting there, it happens on occasion. You still have contacts on the reservation or the reserve, rather, because you have so many friends there. Do you have family there, too? Uh, well, they're, they were all in-laws because I married someone from there. So, But I'm very close to them. You know, they're still we're still close. Um, Miranda, my neighbor, was uh, my former husband's first cousin. She messaged me a couple years ago and said, your friends are at my house now. (laughs) They were messing with, because they do mess with things. I had, okay, my former husband was like one of the best hunters on the whole reserve. He would collect antlers from his kills. And we had a big meat rack thing. It's like a platform built up to trees. And then there's a place where you can hang up, you know, meat above that but you can stand on the platform well that's where he would put his deer antlers moose antlers and whatnot every once in a while something would get up there and throw those things off and they would be in a big circle around the platform on the ground you know giant elk antlers you know 
the whole head, everything. So they were doing that at her house. Your friends are here. That, that reminds me of the time I heard something talking in the bush. You got to hear this story. Yeah, please. On the res, it's not uncommon to get messages in the middle of the night from cousins. And you got any smokes? <laughs> yeah, come on over. And then, you know, they pull in with their car. This was uh, one of my former cousin-in-laws. And she and I were really close. We're still close. And so we're just standing there. It's one in the morning. And we're having a cigarette by her car. And the, the driveway is lined with, by this bush, right? Thick, thick bush, especially on the edge of the driveway, but further in, it's not as thick. So all of a sudden, okay, I'm going to try and imitate this. <laughs> all of a sudden we hear, <laughs> and there was, it was weird because like in, after like, well, first I'll just comp- I'll complete the story. And she goes, cause she knows your friends are here. <laughs> Your friends. Yeah, that's she, <laughs> she jumps in her car. I'm out of here. She jumps in her car and she's just, I'm out of here. And I'm standing there alone. Just just about at that moment, my dogs are like, they're running around from the other side of the house. And I was like, damn it. Because <laughs> they just totally disrupt what could have been an interaction. And I just, I just threw my hands up and went inside because, I, you know, it was just chaos by then. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So you've had quite a few interactions with these things over the years. Um, it seems like it's mostly been focused on on the reserve where you were living. Um, and I know you've had some outside experiences too. We'll get to that in a minute. But during your time on the reserve and interacting with these things, um, what do you think you've learned about them? Like what, what's one, uh, any of your takeaways from having these interactions for so long? My takeaway is they they definitely stay in like groups, family groups, you know, like humans do. Uh, There's a group in the west end of the reserve and there's a group in the north end of the reserve. A different group, distinct. Different group. Yes. That that other people have, you know, had interactions with or seen. I don't know. And how far apart um, uh, in miles or time or however you want to describe it are those two locations? Maybe six, seven, eight miles. Oh, not that far then. Okay. No, no. And they probably are like uh, like um, extended family, more than likely. I don't know. Is there any, any stories about competition or any rivalry between them, territorial or? No, nothing like that. I believe that the big gray one, somebody else has seen that one years later. And he saw that one in... It was a full moon night, and the moon just illuminated the hair on that big guy. I feel like that one is more solitary because it just seems like it is. And then there's like, well, I'll have to tell you, like, one time I hit the deck with a rock, and I was on Skype with some friends, and they're like, why don't you why don't you do some tree knocks? You know, they're trying to get me to do all different kinds of things. <laughs> John's actually heard them scream when I was on Skype with him. I was like, you got to hear this. And I was trying to open my bedroom window, but it was frozen shut. So I, I was like, okay. And I ran into the front door and I stuck the phone out the door and he got to hear it. But, um, when I would, when I would, uh, I went out there with this hard rock and I hit the deck cause I have a, you know, wooden deck. And it made a great noise. And all of a sudden, my dogs, like, I waited, I don't know, maybe a couple minutes. My dogs started backing up in, from the, the entrance of the driveway and barking like crazy. So I just, I was like, I'm, a, I'm by myself. You guys are just on Skype. What are you going to do for me on Skype? <laughs> so I... Uh, I just went inside and the dogs were barking for a while and then they stopped. Another time I did that when an elder, uh, she brought her grandson over because we were having a funerary 
drumming session in our backyard for someone who grew up in the house that had passed away. So that's like three, I don't know, actually three or four days of having a fire. The fire never goes out and you drum and sing at night for the departed. And that goes on until the person is buried. Then you let the fire go out, right? Well, one night they were singing and drumming and then everybody kind of left and there was just a few of us left in the fire, the fire keeper. Um, my nephew just hit his drum once and there was a response by like a tree knock tuk, behind the house and his eyes got really big. But my, my, she was my uh, aunt-in-law, his grandma. She goes, do it again, do it again, nephew or grandson and he hit it again and it happened again his mother said later like the next day that when they went home because that was the end of that that he couldn't sleep all night but his brother was like I want to know more I want to know more so she brought him to the house and I said I can see if I can call them so I hit the deck twice with a rock and my dogs were gone this is when um they weren't gone gone it's just that they kind of roamed freely the whole reserve. <laughs> Got to ev- it's everybody's dogs and they're going away, you know? Well, I, <laughs> I ended up with them because I would feed the starving dogs. Before I knew it, I had nine huge dogs in my yard. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, I had um, rescue people that would work with me and get them fixed and get them uh, uh, food and everything, help me feed them. But anyways, um, after that, Let's see, it was her, Ryu, Savannah, and my daughter, Laurel. So we're all standing on the deck, and we start hearing cracking noises, like something's coming. And it's nighttime, of course. She goes, look, Wea. Wea is like young woman or young lady. And I was like, what? And she goes, look, don't you see those eyes? So we, I sure enough could see these eyes, and they were just the weirdest glowing, like, greenish orangish up way up high almost like the way a moose's look because like if you hunt moose you know and you hunt them and you have your flashlights and whatnot too you know how where they're almost like a cow's eyes or a horse's eyes the way they're apart and they're big but these were like more front facing and then there was two on the one side of it and two on the other side lower down so i was thinking maybe it was a mother with two juveniles so some of the elders say they understand stony so i i had and she's a fluent she's actually the stony teacher at alexis school so i told her what i wanted to say to them and she would say it uh basically that hello i i know you live around me i just wanted to acknowledge you um as my relative and that's all i you know And then that was it. They took off. Everybody that lived on that road has had something walk beside them in the bush. Everyone. And it's just common knowledge that that thing is a Sasquatch or a group of them, at least. To some. I think some are in denial. (laughs) Yeah, some resist the idea still, really? (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, it's fear. Some of them are terrified. Do you have any other takeaways um, by from your time living so close to these things, or at least one group of them, or any other big takeaways that you, you'd want to share with us? There are patterns, the way they they live. They're not like on the clock, but you know what I mean? They have their patterns of movement um, surrounding food sources. And like I said, there's a spring in the backyard behind my house. I imagine they go by there pretty regularly to, to have fresh water. They seem to, they seem to be, there's always seems to be a game trail near where, where there's sightings, which is, you know, logical. Do you think that they use the game trails? And the reason I ask is that uh, one fellow out here in Oregon, the Bigfooter, says that um, he often finds sign of them traveling adjacent to the game trails, the clear, obvious game trails, and which might make sense if they're hunting the deer and whatever else that's using them. Do you find that as well, or do you think they're on the game trails themselves? There's an old wagon trail um, that 
kind of goes, uh, there's a game trail. I haven't found footprints on there, but there's close by, there's a wagon trail. And the trees are kind of smaller, but they're growing up in the middle. And, you know, but you can tell by the ruts that it's an old wagon trail. And um, I've seen a lot of footprints there. And it's, I think it's like because of the, you know, the path of least resistance that they can, um, as far as beside the game trail, not where I lived, because beside the game trail is just so thick. Well, Winona, um, you after you left the reserve, you continued having Sasquatch um, on your, you know, in your life in various ways. You've actually seen them since. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you can you tell us about that? Sure. I didn't really go on any expedition type things in the past, but you know, I I met and married John and moved here to BC, and <clears throat> we have some friends who. Uh, one is, uh, I think he's in Beefro up, up here in BC. And we were going to meet up with him and have a look around. And I had my friend um, David Winter from Washington. I've been friends with him since 2010. He was, used to be in my old Skype group. And he has some really cool uh, toys. <laughs> he has a big fireman thermal. It has the big screen on it. And he hooks up a Sony night shot, old Sony night shot camera to that. And so we decided, you know, to like, he came up for a few days. Kenny was visiting from uh, Maryland and we met up with uh, Jason. So we were standing at the entrance of Sasquatch Park. Uh, I think it's regional park. I don't know. Yeah, up there by um, Harrison Lake anyway. Yeah. So we're just standing there and um, I don't know what time it was. I think it was, it was, I know it was January 28th because it was just a few days before my birthday and it was, you know, it's unusually warm here. I mean, it does snow up there, but it still hadn't snowed and it's, it's not too cold here. So we were just, the, the trees were all bare except for the, uh, you know, there's some green evergreens there but all the lower bush stuff was all gone and we're standing there waiting for Jason to pull up and David goes black blob (laughs) so we all looked up the hill and we could see it it was this black tall thing running through the bush through the trees and then it stopped between these two trees and you had to have the perfect sight line to see it. So John was looking, he had the perfect position to stand where he could see it. And it was between these trees and its shoulders were extending outside of beyond these two trees. So I was behind him and I've always wanted to try this thing with the, you know, the old native sign language because I've had elders also tell me, that they use hand gestures the way the old people used to. My grandpa used it still. He would, you know, make motions with his hands. And while he was speaking, he would had like the sign language thing going on too. So I decided to do like a greeting wave, which is just a, a circle with my hand out. And I was standing behind John. I couldn't see what quite the way he could see it. I could see it. I could see him standing up there, but I couldn't see like John said, oh, and he couldn't see me. John couldn't see me because I was behind him. He goes, oh, it just raised its hand. (laughs) In response. Yeah, that's what we think anyways. (laughs) Or it was just mimicking me or something. I've I've heard of them doing it and I've heard of uh, unsolicited um, them raising their hands almost like in a greeting gesture. Yeah. Oh, cool. We uh, had that happen on the Hickory Apache Reservation. Tracy Herrickstad saw one right off the trail that we had been walking up and down, going to these ruins. And uh, the thing took off, running, shot like a bullet up the hill. And myself and the Colonel Jones chased after it. And we got to the ridge top. He got there before I did. And bef- uh, before I got to the th- just like seconds before I got to the top, I got up there and he had this just astonished look on his face. He said it was standing it was a hundred yards up to the top of the hill and then like another 150 yards over to this bluff. 
and it was standing uh, partway up the bluff on an outcropping that wrapped around the back of it. And it just waited for Kevin to get there, the, the colonel. And when he did, it just raised his hand up like the, the natives do, you know, like raise one hand, palm forward. It did that to him and then dropped the arm down and stepped and just stepped over behind the, the butte and just disappeared. I, yeah, see, that's what elders have said, that they they can speak with their hands. And when you think about it, that used to be the North American universal language was sign language. It didn't matter what you spoke. And I just think, you know, from what I've heard them, the, the sounds that they make, I believe they have language. I do. They have lots of different language. And if you hear some of the older natives in the bush when they're hunting, they make whistles to each other and animal calls to each other because anything else would scare the game away when they're hunting. So I believe that they whistle and, you know, have various forms of communication, sounds, you know, clackings, tree knots, verbal um, and possibly visual, you know, that's, that would be another form of communication if they're trying to be incognito or, you know, and maybe the way they observe people or for all we know, they may have had more intense interactions with the natives in North America previous to colonization. <laughs> they may have picked up some of that, or they may have, um, talked with the native people and learned that you never know like it's possible i mean there are stories of interactions in the past and and the people on the reserve the elders were saying that too there was this one family that would feed them regularly and it was as if they were chosen by by the the bigfoot to get food from whatever why they would do that i don't know but that's just a story i heard so, yeah, I don't think it's far-fetched that they would have the capability of hand gestures. Well, Winona, thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond with us um, and sharing some of your experiences and observations with us. And, and the audience, I think, is going to really appreciate this. Um, and it, it's so cool to get a glimpse um, at, uh, through your eyes at what you've observed because, I mean, we've known about this for a long time, that Sasquatches seem to act just a little differently on reserves and reservations. Um, and I think it's so cool that you had a chance to see Sasquatches on a number of occasions, as well as interact with them, even if they were unseen. So thank you so much for being so generous with your knowledge with us. You're welcome. It was fun. Yeah, thanks, Winona. It's always good to talk to you and say hi to John for us. Give him our best. I will. I sure Oh, heck, will. give him a hug. I love okay. that guy. Okay, yeah. A fist bump for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quarantining. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, but not for COVID. It's other stuff. <laughs> all right Winona thank you so much and you take it easy sure enough you too bye bye so there you are Bobs. that was a good one I enjoyed that yeah yeah for sure it's always good to speak to somebody with multiple observations under their belt and especially someone who had the opportunity to live on a reserve where Sasquatches again act just a little different than everywhere else they definitely do. I mean, that's the those are the places to be for sure. For the if you want interactions, like coming around the house, and you can't beat the reservations. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, you got so you're going out tonight, Cliff, huh? Yeah, I'm going out tonight to see if I can uh, stir one up, or you know, try. I'm going to try to get out there before darks, so just in case I, you know, I can see one and film one in the daytimes. But you know. Um, it's a long shot at best, I would say, <laughs> but I know that if I stay home, I have zero chance. So I'm going to go give it a shot as usual. Right. Well, good luck tonight and say what up to Connor. Thanks so much, man. Okay. I'll talk to you next week. All right, Bobs, close this out, please. Okay, folks. Well, thanks for joining us again. And thank you to Winona Kirk for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another exciting show for you. So till then, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. 
If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 